If you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I'm going to be looking at verses 10 through 17. I'll just ask you, even before uh, we read, that you would pray with me as we seek to uh, put our hearts in a posture uh, ready to learn, ready to receive from God's word everything that he has for us. Pray with me. God, we thank you for your kindness to us that has been shown in the gospel. Because of the cross, we learn that we not only have not received what we deserved, judgment, condemnation, we have received what we did not deserve, the riches owed to Jesus Christ because of his perfect life lived on our behalf. And so, Lord, today, as we approach your word, I pray that the gospel would be infused through every word that I speak, through every thought that we have. I pray that we would see how the gospel message is supposed to touch down in our lives and to influence the unity that we are supposed to have in Jesus Christ. Lord, would you arrest this time for your glory? We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. In the middle of nowhere in Wisconsin, there is a lake called Lake Chippewa. And on that lake is a floating island. You may have seen these news reports from a couple of weeks ago. This island is really a bog, but I mean it's... It's enough of an island that, I mean, deer live on it. There are trees. There, there's wildlife there. I mean, this thing is probably a couple of acres at least. Uh, and it floats around this lake in Wisconsin. There's just one problem. That every now and then, this lake will float into such a position that it blocks uh, this bridge. So this bridge over the water that connects one side of the lake to the other, uh, this island will get in the current and it will block access from one side of the lake to the other. And so what happens is the local residents have to get in their boats and they have to position their boats on a certain side of this bog or this island and they have to like rev their engines as, as hard as they can go to move this island out of the way. And they even... They, they tell news reporters that uh, you have to actually put it in just the right position on the lake or else it'll just be right back in about two days. So if they do it just right, the lake will stay there for about a year. But about once every year or once every year and a half, this, this bog uh, – maybe I just said the lake will move but, – but, but this bog or this island will, will move and will block that bridge again. Uh, one of the local residents there, he owns a business, a restaurant there near the lake. His name is Denny Reyes, and he said, It's one of the first things that you look for when you come here in the morning. Where's the bog? It's like what everybody asks. Am I going to have to get in my boat today and call up all my neighbors and get them all to push this island out of the way? As a matter of fact, we have a picture of it. I don't know if we can, we can show that. I mean, this thing is, is quite large. Um, you know, if just kind of judging by the size of the trees and the size of the boats, uh, you know, you could, you, could, uh, you could probably play a football game on that thing. I mean, it's, it's kind of large. 
and it will block that little bridge that you see in the background and just cause all kinds of problems. Here's the thing, though, about moving this big island out of the way. All of the boaters have to be in just the right place. And they all have to be pushing in the same direction to move it back and to keep it from getting back in this blocked position in just two days. The moral of the story that we learn is this. If everybody is not pushing in the same direction, nothing will get done. The people have to be unified for any good to be accomplished. I mean, imagine, they could burn just as much gas and spend just as much time and get nowhere if everybody lines up all around that little island and kind of pushes toward the middle. Nothing will happen. But when they get in the right position and they begin pushing in the same way, they can overcome that current that is all the time drawing that island toward the bridge and they can get back to life as usual. Today, as we're in 1 Corinthians, we see a few things that have to happen for the church to be unified. Paul is talking about this kind of family feud that is happening in Corinth, and he gives them some prescriptions some directions for how they, too, can be unified. If you'll read with me in verses 10 through 17, the Bible says this, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you. My brothers, what I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say that they were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Now friends, there is a ton of riches in here, and I'm only going to be able to scratch the surface of the depth of, of what's going on here. But the, the first thing that we see here in verse 10 is that we must live in light of Christ and His bearing on our life if we are going to be unified as a church. As a local church, like the church in Corinth, needed to be unified. The Bible says, I appeal to you. You can hear Paul pleading with them. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree. Now, Paul is not coming to them and trying to throw his weight around as an apostle. He's not there just to use his influence and bring it to bear on the Corinthians He's saying this. He's saying, friends, 
we have a deeper source of unity. We can be unified to one another because we have been purchased and unified to Christ. Does that make sense? He's not saying, hey, everybody, just get along for the sake of getting along. He's saying, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree. He's saying the fact that everyone among you professes to know Jesus means that you have something in common. This is one of the most beautiful things about going on a mission trip overseas. Uh, going on a mission trip uh, up to uh, just Massachusetts recently. One of the funniest things that happened on that trip was um, uh, the, the pastor's wife, Katie, was trying to encourage the, the northerners there uh, to, to be friendly. <laughs> when we were walking down you know, through, the, uh, through the, um, uh, the parade that day, the Labor Day parade, and she kind of made this comment. She's like, y'all smile and wave. The southerners who are here, they get it, but y'all smile and wave, right? But the, the funny thing is, is that even though we have kind of this cultural divide, you know, they, they speak in a different way. They kind of talk funny. I don't know if you've ever noticed that about folks from up north, but, but they kind of talk funny. And, um, and they think that I talk funny when I preached to them. But even though there's kind of this cultural divide, you go to South America uh, and there's a language barrier. There's a, a culture barrier as well. But then you get together and everybody sings. And because everybody's focusing on Jesus, there's a source of unity. That's what Paul is saying here. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree. The second thing that we see is that the church should be filled with people who agree. Now, this is very difficult. The Bible is not saying that everybody needs to have the same opinion on every little issue and, and every strategy about how, to go about how to go about doing different things. But the reality is, is that because there is a deposit of faith, because there is a faith once for all delivered to the saints... Jude says, because, in other words, because we have a book, we should be, generally speaking, a people who agree. A people who agree about the most important things. A people who agree about who we are, what our problem is, who God is, and what God has done, and how we are now to live. We are to be a people who generally agree because we have a source of unity, and that source is Jesus Christ. And his gospel. And his Bible. There are some non-negotiables. It's popular to say that doctrine divides. And I understand what people mean when they say that. But friends, I'm here to tell you it's really the opposite. The absence of doctrine divides. Doctrine, what is true... The scriptures and what they teach, doctrine, what we believe, is a basis for unity. Division creeps in when opinions are raised above what is true. Right? So doctrine is what the Bible teaches clearly. The theologians call it the perspicuity of Scripture, that Scripture is clear, that it doesn't take a Ph.D. to understand what the Bible is teaching about who we are, about who God is, and what God has done to reconcile the two. Doctrine doesn't divide. What divides is when opinions are raised above the truth of Scripture. What Paul calls in Corinthians later, 
a stronghold raised up against the knowledge of Christ. He goes on. He says, not only that you agree, but that there be no divisions among you. And that you be united in the same mind, in the same judgment. This is beautiful. I want you to see that, 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 friends, this is why I walk through a passage or a verse or even words at a time. Because there is so much to glean here. When, When you see this phrase, what Paul is encouraging them to be united in the same mind and the same judgment. There's a Greek word for this word for this phrase, be united. And it's a word that was often used in surgical settings. To be united was often, that, that word in the Greek language was often used in the same context as when a doctor or a person would set a broken bone. Okay? Which implies pain. Friends, while this word was used in the outside culture to talk about the resetting of a bone, Paul is taking that word up and using it to talk about the resetting of broken relationships. Often it is painful to do the work of reconciliation. But what Paul is saying here is that it's worth it. It's worth it to endure that initial pain of resetting a bone in order to get back to a place of health so that you can walk straight again. This points to just how hard and painful this often is. And friends, I I think as a church, if we're going to be unified... Unity does not mean the absence of conflict. Unity does not mean the absence of confrontation when it's healthy and needed. Unity means that from time to time we're willing to set a bone in order to get healthy again. We have to be able to work at this and to make sacrifices. Uh, uh, Some other people translate this phrase for be united or setting that bone to, to be refurbished. To make what used to work, work again. And to be willing to endure the pain. Everybody who's ever restored an old vehicle knows just how long they can sit at a body shop forever. Calling the guy and asking him, how long is it going to be all three more weeks? How long is it going to be four more weeks? How long is it going to be while we're waiting on parts to come in? To make what used to work, work again. And Paul goes on in the next couple of verses, verses 11 and 12, to talk about how divisions creep in. He gives them a warning and he tells them, this is how it has happened among you and today in Trenton Baptist Church in 2023. We can watch out for this ourselves. Verse 11. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people. The commentators say that Chloe is not necessarily even a believer. But she knows of the disunity in this church. Which shows just how bad of an example it can be in the outside community when a church is not unified. It has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. And what I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? See, what had happened here in the Corinthian church is that people had begun to divide themselves up by their favorite leader, by their favorite personality. 
They had been able to organize themselves into little cliques or affinity groups based on who they liked to hear from. But, but that is not even the only problem. That is not even the deepest problem. The problem is that they had begun to reason the way that the world reasons. You see, it was very common in Greek culture to have your favorite teacher, to have your favorite philosopher, to have your favorite speaker, and to follow that person. Well, what had happened in the church in Corinth is that they had taken this idea from their culture. Everybody has their favorite person. It's like everybody has their favorite band or their favorite politician. And they had imported that into church life. And now they were lining up behind their favorite personality. And it was causing division in the church. Now, in a church like ours, I mean, we don't have multiple teachers. I mean, you don't have many options. You just kind of have me. And when I go on vacation, somebody else comes in. But it's, it's, it's unlikely that in our church you're going to be, like, competing. I, I, I like Greg when he preaches. And I like, well, there's nobody else right now, okay? So, so this, it's not really possible. But what the deeper issue that's going on here in the church in Corinth is that they were taking ways of reasoning that they learned out in the world and they were bringing them into church life. And friends, that is something that all of us need to be on guard about. Whether it looks exactly like it did in Corinth or not. The Corinthians are showing that patterns of thought among them just hadn't quite yet been changed by their relationship with Jesus. They were reasoning as the world Reasons, Friends, let me apply this to you. Let, let me ask you. Does the way that you reason, does the, the method that you go through when you make decisions, does that demonstrate that Christ has changed you? Or could the way that you go about making decisions be followed by an unbeliever? Right. Could, could, could they simply reach the same conclusions the same way that you did? And friends, in church life, we have a lot of strategies to think through. We have a lot of decisions to think through. I think our church mainly has all of the, the what questions answered. We, we pretty much know what we believe, but how are we going to put it into practice? And there are all kinds of questions about budget and questions about strategy and, and outreach and, and practical needs, things like parking lots and things like you know, lights that, that go out and all kinds of things like that. And how is the best way to go about doing X, Y, or Z? If we find that we go about all of these decisions in the same manner that an unbeliever could, we are in danger of doing the same thing that the church in Corinth was doing, reasoning in a way that basically was Christless. They didn't need Jesus to do what they were doing. They didn't need the Holy Spirit. They were basically reasoning the same way that they used to before they were Christians. Christ did not become Lord of their minds. So we need to ask ourselves when we're thinking through finances, do we believe that God will provide? When we're thinking through big decisions, do we have faith undergirding what we're doing? When we're about to approach a change, do we think first about the kingdom of God and what will please it? Or do we think first about our preferences or our comfort zones? For the Corinthians, the, the issue was that people were hitching their wagons to their favorite teachers. Instead of hitching their wagons to Christ. Now, it's unclear 
whether these teachers even wanted this kind of following, but there is some evidence that um, that there were some people who were trying to build a platform. We'll talk about that in a moment. But basically what was going on is that the speakers had learned that if they could become a persuasive stage personality, they could build a following. We have to be on guard here. How are we going to guard our unity? Mature Christians are always interested in following Jesus. And mature Christians are also very skeptical when someone tries to win them over to their cause. Friends, I'm going to go ahead and give you like a, an axiom. I'm going to give you a truth that I think is usually 100% accurate. Anytime a person is trying to win you over to their side, they are usually not trying to win you over to Christ. Typically. Typically. The way for us to be unified is for every individual one of us to have our eyes focused on Jesus. And if we're following Jesus through his word, we'll look up and look next to one another. And hey, it's like everybody has pulled their boat up to the same side of the floating island. Because we've all got our gaze set on the same goal. And I'm a, I'm a soccer coach for U6 soccer team, you know, it's like six-year-olds and under, and it's great because it's really not soccer. It's kind of like a swarm, right? There's no, there are no positions. There's no right wing and left wing. Sometimes there's not even a goalie, right? There's not even a goalkeeper. It's, it's that they kind of float around in this one little swarm. So I don't even try to teach them what midfield is. I don't even try to teach them what defense is. I'm just like, hey, find the ball and kick the ball. And usually they're like kicking one another because they're all so focused on the ball. Now, this is terrible soccer. But it's really good Christianity. Because every one of those kids sees one thing on the field. They see that ball. And all they know is, I want to go after that ball. And so they'll even kick their brother. They'll even kick their own teammate. They'll kick their own goal. They'll even kick the ball into their own goal because all they care about is that ball, right? And friends, I think, of course, terrible soccer, great Christianity. When we get focused on that one thing, Jesus Christ, we will be unified. Because preferences, opinions, traditions, they begin to take a back seat. Rivalries, bitterness, all those things get left in the rearview mirror because everybody is focused like a U6 soccer team on that one thing. Paul has his own remedy, verses 13 through 17. He says this, Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized into my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus, but beyond that I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom. Lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. 
Now, there's a lot going on here. What is Paul saying? Is he saying that baptism is unnecessary? He's like, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. What, what is he saying? Is he saying that baptism is somehow unimportant? What he's saying is, is not that it's somehow bad to be baptized. Of course not, in light of everything else that the New Testament teaches. Rather, he's saying that using your platform of ministry to try to build your own following so that people can say, oh, I was baptized by Pastor so-and-so. I was pastor. I was baptized by Brother so-and-so. I was, I, I'm a disciple of Paul. I'm a disciple of Crispus. I'm, I'm a disciple of Cephas. I'm a disciple of Christ. Is Christ divided? No. Paul is saying that the way to be unified is to care less about self and to care more about Christ. The way to be unified is to put our prerogatives and our preferences and our opinions in the back seat to the Great Commission. He's saying we have one goal above everything else. And that goal is that the gospel of Jesus will go forward. And when we are focusing on that goal, we will find that we are unified together. There's also this danger. Why would it be that these people would be lining up behind these other teachers? Well, we have to understand a little bit of the culture. In this time and in this culture, there was no audiovisual, you think about it. The event to go to would be the speaking event, right? You could go to the town. You could go to the to the, the, the Areopagus like they did in, in uh, Acts chapter 17 to hear the philosophers debate. And it was the thing to do. There was no movie theater. There were no light shows. There were no smoke machines. You couldn't go down to the church and listen to the At the Movies sermon series. No slick productions to attract. What could attract? Speech. And what was happening in this culture is that some folks got a hold of this. They knew that if they could become slick speakers, skilled orators, eloquent and skillful craftsmen of men, if they could figure out how to work a room, they could build a following for themselves. It was ingrained in the culture. People already like to have their favorite guys. So why not just take that into the church and baptize it? And I can create my own ministry and people will follow me. So we have to really get a hold of this. When we read books from the 1800s, you see how long they are. And you listen to about how church folks would go to church on Sunday to listen to like three hour long sermons. Just as recently as two or three hundred years ago. You don't have to go back to the first century. Like in our culture, people would listen to hours long Sermons. Pastors like Jonathan Edwards in the 1700s wrote more in five years than many of us will ever read in our lifetimes. This was the medium of the day. This is what you did. You read long books. You listened to speakers. Aristotle spoke about this. He called it rhetoric. He said it was the the, the ability to discover the possible means of persuasion in reference to any subject whatsoever. It doesn't even have to be anything important or eternal. As long as you could figure out how to turn a phrase, you could probably build a tribe. You see the danger? The danger was then, and the danger is today, 
that it's possible to be persuaded by human brilliance instead of converted by the power of God. It's possible to be captivated by human speech instead of converted by the message of the cross. The Bible says here in 1 Corinthians that the message of the cross, the gospel, is foolishness. How can God save by a foolish message only if it's Him who does the saving? Right? It can't be some slick speaker if someone is going to get genuinely saved. It can't be human brilliance. It can't be someone who can work a room and turn a phrase. And friends, don't, don't you see how silly it was for all those years in evangelicalism that we spent bringing in the slickest evangelist. People who could close a deal. Like a used car salesman. They could turn a phrase and evoke a response from a crowd when what we really needed all along was not someone who could work a room, but but someone who could share the simple message of the gospel so that the power of God could be used to save, to convict hearts, and to convert sinners. Friend, this is my concern for the church today. Back then it was slick orators. Back then it was people who were telling something new and something novel and something slick. And it was back then it was people who were trying to have a group line up behind them. Today it looks more like concert level worship bands and smoke machines and light shows. And why do we need all these things? I'm afraid it's because we are so painfully bored with God. He doesn't excite us anymore. So we need a dopamine dump. The faith once for all delivered to the saints has grown stale. And so we need something new. Something trendy. Preacher, tell me something that I haven't heard before. Has replaced, remind me of what is ancient and unchanging. Friends, if there's one thing that we need. One thing to convert our kids One thing to win our community to the gospel. One thing to keep our church unified and immune to the schemes of the devil. It is to fall back in love with the simple, foolish message of the cross. And when we line up behind that island and we put our engines to full throttle, when we go after that one soccer ball, we will find that I believe the Lord will use us in ways that we did not even believe were possible because our gaze is fixed on the only thing that matters, the gospel of Jesus Christ. On that remote Wisconsin lake, everybody wakes up every morning and asks the same question. Where's the island today? Right? Unity in Christ, unity in His church comes from a similar motivation when we wake up every morning and ask what needs to be done today. Where's the mission today? Let me call my neighbors, line up behind it, and let's get to work. How can I make sure that the job gets done? That's a message for us, Christian. Perhaps for the one who's not in Christ. Have you ever come to terms with this message? This message that I've been talking about, this foolish message of the gospel that that we can never be good enough to get into heaven. 
that we're not graded on the curve, that it's not being a good old boy that gets us into heaven. Instead, it has to be the perfect record of somebody else in our place. Jesus came and lived a perfect life to build that perfect record. And he offers to give us his perfect record, his perfect report card. And we present that to God and God says, you are mine. Because we come under the banner of Jesus. Jesus lived the perfect life that we could not live. He died the death on the cross to pay for our sins, the death that we should have died. So that whoever will place their faith in Jesus, not by works, but by faith alone, can be saved. Friends, I don't know how to explain it any better than that. I don't know how to put any polish or any spin on it to make it somehow more persuasive to you. But the good news is this, is that there is a God. He is real. We are sinners, and that creates a gap between us. But God, because he loved us, bridged that gap for us. And that bridge is not our good works. That bridge is not our church attendance. That bridge is not our doing good for another person on the side of the road or being a good Samaritan even. That bridge is the perfect finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And whoever will turn away from their sin and place their trust in that message can have Jesus, can have eternal life. This is good news. It's simple. It's so simple that the philosophers in the first century wanted something a little more impressive. And it's foolish. It's foolish. I mean, you share this message with others and many will scoff. But it has pleased God to save us through this simple and foolish message for anyone who will come. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you so much for this message of the gospel. I pray that I would be a faithful ambassador of that message. I pray that I would not try to clean the gospel up or to add to it or to take away from it, but that the gospel itself has power, that you are holy, we are sinful, and Jesus has offered to bring us together through what he did on the cross. Thank you, God. I pray that if there is anyone today under the sound of my voice who has never done business with you based on that simple message that today they would come and give their lives to Jesus. I pray that for anyone who has up to this point trusted in their good works or trusted that they think that they're good enough or they haven't done this or that they usually do that, I pray that they would see that that's a false gospel that sends people to hell. And I pray that we today would embrace the gospel apart from works. The gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. I pray that for those of us who have come to terms with Jesus on that basis, that we would be ready every morning to ask the question, where is the mission today? And how can I line up with my brothers and sisters in Christ to move the ball down the field and to make sure that Jesus' church at Trenton Baptist stays unified and stays on mission? I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.